0: Well, we, we may have had something uh, interesting I thought I might pass along to you happen over the last 48 hours. Uh, the track hole yesterday was digging a hole, trying to kind of scratch around, looking for uh, an entrance or something, and brushed against a, what appears to be a furnace, Uh, We found the ash pit several places where they were processing ore up there. And uh, in this particular case, uh, it looks like it has been rounded with kind of a lip in front, and then they'd come in from above with a, a hole for a chimney. So it's an earthen furnace, if you will. Now, we have felt, actually for several years now, but they had to have been using a pretty simple process out there to process the ore to get the gold and the silver and, and so on out. And we, from the Spanish methods we'd read about, and from what is around up there, we felt that they were using uh, fire from the wood, uh, lime, and the ore, of course. Now, in this particular case... Well, most of the times when we find ashes where they've been working, it's just it's just ashes. You know, it's what's left over. Well, in this particular case, they had laid the fire in the furnace, gotten it ready to process, but they had not ever fired it. It's like they left it loaded but not fired. And what we had had problems with was understanding. Where they put the fire, where they put the lime, where, you know, how they did this thing. What was the recipe? Because uh, gold, in the kind of ore that is, if you do a fire assay, which is the way they test ores for the most part in the labs, they use some chemicals, but they use a fire assay, they call it. That type, if it has tellurium in it or selenium, or, or it's an oxide or a sulfite, or what they call a gold salt, fire will cause uh, will cause the gold and the silver to go right out the chimney. Uh, that's well known in, in mining uh, circles. In fact, if there's tellurium in it, one ounce of tellurium can send 40 ounces of gold up the chimney, vaporizes it. I had a chemist at Desert Labs tell me that. So they were putting that wood and lime and ore, and they used one other ingredient, which is there too, clay. Uh, Well, we didn't know that, and we didn't know what order they put it all in to get it to work. Well, this furnace appears to have just been laid with everything in order. So uh, we went up today and got a bunch of lime and a bunch of firewood, and we have ore there, so we're going to do some tests tomorrow and see see if we uh, now know how to how they were processing. I mean, they didn't have big fancy labs with all kinds of chemicals and stuff up there. The Spanish didn't, or the Mayans and Incas didn't. Uh, you know, hundreds or thousands of miles from civilization, uh, they had to be using simple methods over the thousands of years. So I, I felt it was interesting that there might be somewhat of a breakthrough there. We'll just see see if it's instructive, see what it's telling us, and if it uh, is indeed the case. I don't want to build false hope again, but uh, uh, this is an ongoing process, but I'm hoping that through these days of unleavened bread and you know, the end of them, maybe things will start looking up. You know, uh, Israel was delivered in one way, on Passover night, but then they went through six more days of, of uh, traveling, uh, showing the works they were willing to do what work they needed to get out of Egypt. And on the seventh day, apparently, we've always felt that, and probably is the case, was the day they actually got out of Egypt or Mitzriam, we might say, the land of Ham, for sure. Uh, by the Red Sea parting and God gave the great deliverance then. You know, they started, He, he gave them permission to leave and then they traveled for six and a half days uh, and me right there at the end. So who knows what God has in mind. Uh, we're only a couple, three days now. Let's see, this is Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Three more days of unleavened bread left. And uh, maybe this breakthrough means something. Maybe it doesn't. We'll just wait and see. But I I find it encouraging at least. You know, why didn't they fire it off? Did they leave it there uh, as a testimony for later on? Or did they get scared off? Or did they just have so much gold they couldn't carry anymore and said, ah, forget it and just left it? I I have no idea. But uh, it may tell us the story. Uh, So... We'll pursue that a little more. Anyway, let's go to Isaiah 59. I think since we're already into this, we might as well. Or no, it's fifty. Yeah, fifty-nine. Uh, might as well continue a little bit here. Uh, he, he's continuing to discuss the things that uh, are issues with him. And things that we need to be addressing, I, I kind of find it interesting in a way that that we went through those chapters that that explained a series of events and talked about coming out, and then you have the Passover, and it shows right after the Passover then, uh, the, the coming of many people and God beginning to bless. But then it goes right back after 55 and starts talking about difficulties and sins and problems again. And it's almost like the Passover comes and then God says, as a result of repentance and forgiveness and so on, I'm going to give you blessings, but wait just a minute. We have days of unleavened bread left. Let's consider that. So the the, the whole story seems to just be laid out here. In order for us now, uh, does that mean any anything in terms of now? Maybe, maybe not. We shall see if this is the year. But whichever year it happens, it seems to be the way that it is laid out. Um, Anyway, let's let's go to chapter fifty-nine. He says, "Behold, the Eternal's hand is not shortened; they cannot save." neither his ear heavy, that he cannot hear. So, God isn't so short-armed, he can't reach down and help us. Nor is he deaf, that he can't hear our prayers. Uh, He can hear them. So, what's the problem? But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. So, it's not that he's gone deaf, It's not that his arm arm is short, but we have a problem. Uh, This keeps cropping up. I don't care where you go in the Bible. Uh, Our humanness is always the contingency in any of God's plans. We have to do our part. He will always do his part, but we limit him by our conduct. It says, "I, I have the capacity here. I can do what needs to be done. I can hear what you're saying, but your actions speak louder than your mouths, as the expression goes. Or your action speaks so loud I can't hear you. So we have this problem that we have to solve, and interestingly, here we are in the days of unleavened bread, and and, uh, this is all laid out for us during a time when we're supposed to be uh, making a, a formal effort at least more so than normal, to really focus on getting sin and wrong thoughts and so on out of our minds and and, and actions. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perverseness. So, have we killed anybody? Are our hands defiled with blood? Well, let's take this on a spiritual level, not purely physical. And if we assassinate the character of each other or others uh, in, a, in a mean or down, demeaning way, uh, we can be murdering. Now, we kid each other all the time. I don't think he's talking about that, uh, kidding each other and, and joking and laughing. Uh, I think there is certainly a place for that, and, and uh, laughter does make the heart merry, like a medicine, as the proverbs say. So there's nothing wrong with some laughter and kidding around. But things that are truly mean, mean or hurtful or cruel, or uh, cast aspersions on the character of someone else, if if they become discouraged or give up as a result of our comments, then have we not murdered them on a spiritual level? That's why stabbing people in the back verbally is its not like you're shedding their blood physically with a physical knife, but uh, sometimes those things can go deep too. And our fingers can do iniquity the same way on a spiritual level. None calls for justice, nor any pleads for truth. We just kind of rock on, but we don't really maybe spend enough time looking for true justice. Now, this is true in our land, uh, but it can also be true spiritually in the church. So we have to... We can't do anything about the way things are in the physical nation, can we? uh, You know, we're kind of helpless and hopeless that way. So we have to consider it on a a spiritual level, level in our own lives, and that we can do something about. So God breaks this down to a level where we can be effective, we can accomplish something, as opposed to moaning about the way things are in the world and in the nation and not being able to do anything about it. The American people feel pretty hopeless uh, in the face of everything that's going on uh, as as our economy and our wealth and everything has just slipped away and we're utterly bankrupt. It just hasn't hit yet. We're, we're bankrupt, we just haven't filed officially. But uh, the other countries will file for us pretty soon. <clears throat> they conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. Uh, they hatch cockatrice eggs and weave the spider's web. I've just wondered, and several have speculated on this, if the Internet and the, the web might not be referred to here. Uh, You know, there's nothing wrong with computers, necessarily. There's nothing wrong with the Internet, necessarily. But there's an awful lot of evil that goes across the Internet, just like there is other forms of media or entertainment or whatever. Uh, There's an awful lot of mischief and iniquity and lying and pornography and anything you want to name on the Internet. He that eats of their eggs dies. The things that are there can... Kill us spiritually, and that which is crushed breaks out into a viper, so it's like you're walking on snake eggs, <laughs> and uh, they they rupture, and you've got snakes around your feet. their web shall not become garments, neither shall they lay shall they cover themselves with their works. their works are works of iniquity you know you when when you lie, cheat, steal break all of God's rules and laws, as our nation is, uh, and you use that as a cover or clothing, it doesn't work because they're right out on the outside for everyone to see. So we, hopefully, by doing good works, can hide and cover a lot of sin. though know, it says there that uh, uh, he who turns people from iniquity covers a lot of sin. So, by good works, we can cover up sin. But by evil works, you don't cover anything. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hand. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. What did he say at the end time? As it was in the days of Noah. Noah that all thoughts are evil continually. This may be, in most respects, talking about the nation around us. It might not be spiritually applicable in every way, although certainly I think it has that application. On the other hand, what does he tell us to do? If If this is the land we're living in, what does he tell us to do? Come out of her, my people. Get away from her. Don't mix with this kind of stuff. Because if you partake of her plague or sins, you will also partake of her plagues. So he's describing the world we have around us. And he says, Don't you be this way. He's not shortened or his ears heavy that he can't hear us because we're the ones talking to him. But he says, Look at all this around you and look how it affects you. Uh, Verse 8, the way of peace they know not. Now, he tells us he's going to show us the way to peace there in Isaiah 54 and in Haggai 2 and many other places. And, of course, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, blessed are the peacemakers, those who learn how to make peace and do so. Uh, Are there any here who don't know how to make war? Well, that comes natural, doesn't it? We, we can make war easy. Uh, all somebody has to do is say a, say something and it'll set us off and we're in full battle form, ready to go. We, we can make war real easy, but it takes a lot more effort to make peace. If somebody else is upset and they're ready for war and they're waving their sword or their gun in your face, uh, you have a formidable challenge if you want to make a peaceful settlement out of This situation. It takes skill to make peace. Any redneck can make war. Or whatever color neck he's got. That just comes so natural. So they don't know the way to peace. They don't know how to accomplish it. And there's no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Well, he tells us to make the crooked straight, doesn't he? Uh, We've grown up in a society that has crooked paths, and our leadership is implored to uh, make the crooked straight, and we as individuals need to learn to do that as well. Uh, It takes a lot of study, a lot of thought, to know how to get through life following a straight path rather than a crooked way. "...whosoever goes therein shall not know peace." A crooked path leads to difficulties and confrontations and problems. I hear people around here once in a while lamenting, well, we don't have enough love and and, uh, we do too much gossiping and this and that. Well, maybe we still have a way to go in making straight paths and in how to make peace." Maybe we don't pay enough attention to that. You know, it's easy if somebody says something about you to just immediately want something right back, to defend self. It's our first and natural reaction is to defend self, put self first. And you have to stop and control yourself to make peace out of the situation. It doesn't come natural and it doesn't come easy. In fact, it's maybe the last thing you think of when you get upset uh, emotionally, frustrated. It's, it's easy to make war. It's hard to make peace. So if God says, I'm going to bring peace, then the people who are involved must learn the tools and the, the method to create peace. Therefore, is judgment far from us? Neither neither does justice overtake us. You know, proper judgment, proper justice, proper way of handling things and doing things uh, does not come easy. It's it's far away. It has to be worked at, and it does. Justice just doesn't kind of sneak out of the dark and catch up with you, does it? Uh, we put ourselves first. We put our desires and our needs first and other people second or third or fourth or whatever. Uh, you, you think these things are just going to overrun you? No. They have to be worked out or worked at. We wait for light, but behold, obscurity. Well, you kind of sit and say, Oh, God, illuminate me. Oh, God, enlighten me. And uh, it won't happen. you You'll live in obscurity, darkness. For brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. It isn't that true a lot. We we say things, we do things that create conflict for us, and it's like we just kind of stagger around like a drunk and uh, and can't find the happiness, the peace, the joy, the security we're looking for. Well, we're not applying the rules and, of God that cause us to walk in the light. We stumble at noonday, as in the night. It's easy to stumble around at night, you should be able to walk at noonday, but Living life, it doesn't matter whether it's night or day with most people, they don't know the keys, they don't know, have the tools to know how to live and walk in the right way so that they don't stumble and fall and live in misery and unhappiness and frustration. We're in desolate places as dead men. One thing to stumble around, but it's, it's like you're dead dead man can't, doesn't have any peace, doesn't have any happiness, doesn't have any justice. He has no thoughts. It's just like trying to have happiness and joy. You might as well be dead because you can't produce it. We roar all like bears. Well, sometimes we get angry, we get frustrated, so we roar like a bear and mourn sore like doves. A dove has a very plaintive, sad, wistful cry so sometimes we're angry, and then sometimes we're just frustrated and mourn. We look for judgment, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far off from us. That's kind of the way the church has been. That's the way the nation is. Our people, our, the church has been confused now for a couple decades. And now the nation that had such, people thought, a bright future is now stumbling and groping and trying to figure out what to do. Shall we cut the budget a little? Shall we do this? Shall we print more money? Uh, Well, um, there's nothing, nothing they can do. doesn't matter what they do. There is no answer anymore other than turning to God collectively as a nation with its whole heart. And he says, it is not going to happen. Don't even pray for this people. Well, we can still pray for each other because we are enlightened and we do know the way. And we need to help each other stay on the path. Then God will hear. But then again, it reminds us, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. We're pretty well aware of problems and attitudes and and so on that we can have. So he says you're stumbling and around in the dark. Uh, but remember the the transgressions that are multiplied before our Father in heaven, and he's allowing us to fumble around. The churches are, the nation is. In transgressing and lying against the eternal and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, and judgment is turned away backward, and justice stands way off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. When people are living in a carnal way, pursuing their own paths of selfishness, you're not going to find truth and judgment and justice and peace and happiness and joy, because it is breaking God's rules that brings unhappiness, that brings frustration. We, we have to be convinced, not only in our minds, but in our emotions and feelings, that God's way is the best. Yes, truth fails, falls in the street. Isn't it, Jeremiah says something about not letting one of God's words fall to the ground. And here it's, uh, it's talking about how truth just falls in the street. Well, truth is so precious. We, we can't turn loose of it and let it fall. We have to cup our hands around truth and hang on to it. Don't let it fall in the street. But you know how quickly you can forget a scripture you've read. You can read a section of scripture, and two days later you forgot you read it, or you forgot what it said. Um, Or I've even sat and read the Bible, and my mind would wander off somewhere else, and I didn't even comprehend what I just read. Go back and read it again. Concentrate this time, would you? (laughs) Or be half asleep. You know, and and you just don't get it. So it can fall in the street real easy. You know, somebody. I was just thinking, uh, even even yesterday, uh, you can hear something, maybe somebody said or so on, and you you get your back up immediately. Wow, well, I shouldn't say that. Well, they did. <laughs> How are you going to react? You know how quickly you let 1 Peter 2, 20 fall to the ground? Drop it just like that. 20 through 24. What does it say if somebody says something about you that you did and you take that patiently? This is not acceptable to God. That's just expected. But if they say something about you that you didn't do and you take that patiently, then that's acceptable to God. Now, how many times have... I, have you, have we, let that fall to the street. The minute you hear something that you don't like, immediately you're ready to say something back, you're ready to respond and retaliate. And it's so easy to forget First Peter 2, 20 through 24 is even there. It's, just, it's like you just dropped it and walked past it. It's gone. As I, I know I was formulating some thoughts yesterday when that crossed my mind. I thought, wait a minute. How should I react to what I just heard? Should I defend myself? Should I let it go? Uh, should I chase this out and find out who said that? You know, that's often the first thing somebody will say is, Who said that? Who said that? They want to know where that came from so they can do something about it. Or so they know who to be mad at. <laughs> Whatever. So 1 Peter 2, Pump. It's easy to forget, isn't it? So easy. Yes, truth fails. And he that departs from evil makes himself a prey. Yeah, you can make yourself a prey if you depart from evil. Because people can take advantage of you if you don't retaliate. It's so easy to forget Christ's reaction. And Peter was talking about Christ there in 1 Peter 2, that we just quoted. As he was, as Isaiah 53 says, as the lamb led to the slaughter, he did right, but he was an easy prey for others. But he didn't defend himself. Well, if you want to say that, you want to think that, go for it. And the Eternal saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. He doesn't like it when he sees people taking advantage of people who are trying to do it right. Now, if we don't defend ourselves, who's going to defend us? I would prefer to have Christ Emmanuel as my defending attorney. He can do a better job of defending me than anyone else, including me. And you know what? He has the ear of the ultimate judge. He's my mediator. He's the one who intercedes for me. He's the one that can take care of my enemies. How often did David say, oh God, take care of my enemies for me. Now, he was a man of war and he took care of a lot of his enemies, all right. But then God didn't like that either. He says, because you are such a bloody man, uh, you don't get to build a temple. And it was David's heart to build a temple. He assembled everything for it in spite of that. He didn't get in a bad attitude about it and say, well, all right then, build your own temple. No, he went ahead and got everything ready and talked to his son and says, you build it. God is not letting me do it because of my mistakes and my attitude. But he said, he's going to let you do it. So he had a wonderful attitude about it. And I'd rather Christ be our defender than us defending ourselves. Because it says here he doesn't like it when you do well and you become prey to uh, those who are evil. It displeased him that there was no judgment. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Now, we saw earlier in Isaiah 52, no, 51, that there was no son among all the sons that the church produced uh, who could lead, as Herbert Armstrong did. And there's there's a gap of time in there between the time he died and the church comes apart and God sends new leadership in the form of two witnesses, to lead in the right way. So we're in that period now, in between, when there's no intercessor there, there's no real leadership, and everybody's kind of wandering around somewhat confused. Therefore his arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Remember there in Ephesians where Paul quoted this, the, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, and went through the different pieces of armor, the sword of the truth, and so on. Quoted from right here. So God is going to take vengeance against those who are evil and those who mistreat those who would be righteous. What a defender we have. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the islands or the coasts, he will pay recompense. The coasts are where the majority of people on any continent live. Well, that goes back to Isaiah 51 as well. Remember he said that couple of trembling of insecurity and frustration that you've been drinking from, I'm going to take it away from you and give it to your enemies. Oh, it's the garbage dump. There'll be room in the dumpster tomorrow. He doesn't work 8 to 5. So, God is going to come to our rescue. So shall they fear the name of the Eternal from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun. Now, just prior to this, in chapter 50 or no, 45, he says that the treasures that God provides to do His work at the end time are going to be used to show everybody, from the rising of the sun to the setting, all around the world, in other words, that He is God. So this is a recurrent theme here again. Uh, we, We keep seeing the same things brought up as God goes on through the story. They'll fear the name of the Eternal from the West, and His glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Eternal shall lift up a standard against him. Now that reminds me of Revelation 12, where Satan is cast down when the abomination is, of desolation is set up, and we have to flee, and it says that Satan will send a flood, an army after us, and we have to flee for our very lives in order to be saved, but uh, God is going to cut off the flood. He's not going to let them catch his people. He'll lift a standard against it. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion. So you flee to Zion, the flood is cut off, and your Redeemer comes to Zion. And to them that turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Eternal. So, he goes through, here again, shows us our sins, shows us our problems, shows us the difficulties in the church and in the nation. And he says, those who turn from their transgressions will be protected. So, if we make peace, if we look for justice, if we don't let the truth fall to the ground, but we live by God's ways, then he says, I'll cut off your enemies at a time in which... I'm going to make my glory be shown around the world and I will protect you in Zion. I'm glad we understand where Zion is so we don't run off to Petra and have problems when we get there because Christ is coming to Zion. That's where He's coming. Now, we'll see whether that's the Zion in the Middle East or whether that's the Zion here, won't we? My vote goes for this one. That's why I'm here sitting just outside the Canaan Mountains. Haven't been admitted in yet. Uh, Just just outside the land of Canaan. These are the Canaan Mountains right back here. Mount Canaan on the way to Hurricane. So we're sitting at the border in that sense. I I think geologically of, I mean, this whole area, the whole United States for that matter, is the promised land. But I find it very interesting that these are the Canaan mountains right here and we're sitting just outside. We're not in there yet. Uh, we've Got to go through them to get to Zion. To those that He will protect from the flood that turn from transgression. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Eternal. My spirit that is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth, nor out of the mouth of your seed, nor out of the mouth of your seed's seed, says the Eternal, from henceforth and forever. ever. Now, that's a pretty good promise right there, isn't it? I, I don't think I've really focused on that one. I've got it underlined or marked a little bit, but... Uh, that one should be one of those that just sticks out at us. Because here we are at the end where a flood, an army is coming after us, Satan is after us, God will redeem us, he'll save us out of it if we're the obedient ones, uh, those counted worthy to escape all these things that are coming. So the promise is on into the millennium, isn't it? Our seed, our seed, seed, generations on of the millennium, uh will be with God from hence forward and forever. Wow! Some, some of us are concerned quite a bit about our children. God isn't calling them now. Uh, they're out in the world. They're worldly. They're not really seeking God. Um, I don't have one that's truly seeking God. They recognize this as the church, some of them, uh, at least two. The other three have their own ideas. They're, they're not looking. One of my sons told me fairly recently, he asked me something about what Herbert Armstrong taught. And, uh, and I told him. And he said, oh good. He said, I wanted to know that. He said, I am trying to forget everything I learned in the church as a child. He's trying to expunge it. To, to find fault with it. To get rid of it. And my, my heart kind of sank. It sounded like he was interested in what I had to say. Well, he was interested, all right. He was interested because he says, oh, okay, I can get rid of that because he's got this new Protestant teaching. I mean, he's still friendly. still honors me. He still fixes my computer for free if I buy him dinner. No. Uh, but, uh, but he's just trying to get rid of everything God has taught because of his better understanding and the grace that he lives by. And the Lord sits on his shoulder and tells him whether to buy a computer or whether to go to the store today or what. I said, you're tapped into something I don't want anything to do with. Uh, So this sounds good. if I will obey God, somewhere along the line, he's going to humble and teach my children some things that they need to know. uh, And they won't be able to forget them. Uh, they're going to have their opportunity. Now, do I blame him? No, not really, because God said He's working with this older generation. He says this generation will not die out before these things happen. So the ones that He called, He's not calling many of our children. A few here and there, but not very many. And the rest of us are looking at our kids and saying, "Boy, what's going to happen? How how will God save them?" I don't know, but He can says He will. He says if we will do what we're supposed to, He's going to make a covenant with us. And the mouth of our seed and the mouth of your seed's seed. So at least down to your great, great-grandchildren and then henceforth and forever means those generations through the millennium. It might mean even some of our children may not live into the millennium. I don't know. But if they come up in the great white throne judgment, then they're going to be straightened out, then they're going to be converted and obey, and they're going to be part of God's kingdom. God's promising, I will take care of your children. You know, there's a lot of children on earth, aren't there? Well, he can select which ones he wants to take care of. Now, for proof, didn't he reach down with each and every one of us? John 6:44. You cannot come except the Spirit of the Father draw you. So he had to select each of us by name, individually, to open the truth to us. Now, if he could look down on billions of people and pick them out here and there, the ones he wants to work with, can he do the same with our kids? If he found us, he ought to be able to find our kids. So it's not that great a stretch, really, if you think about it. So, I think we need to quit worrying about our children so much and worry about ourselves in that sense. Uh, If I do what I'm supposed to do, then God says, I'll take care of your kids. Don't worry about them. I I love them. I love you. If you obey me, I'll take care of your kids. Oh, so he puts it right back on us. It isn't the kids' problem. It's my problem then, isn't it? If I want my kids protected, if I want them taken care of and to serve God forevermore, then I have to do my part. If I don't do my part, then his promise to take care of my kids just goes away. Because that's a covenant with us, not a covenant with our children. So that, that one verse says a mouthful. Well, it's ten minutes till the hour is up, so I think we'll stop there. And uh it gets it gets real positive again thereafter, which is nice, so we'll be dismissed for this evening.